Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. everybody to another edition of This Week in Doom and you'd have to say there's been plenty of it around this week and here to discuss it with me as always my chicken partner in crime the great Doomberg himself. Hello mate. Hey Grant how are you doing? Great to be back with you. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine. It's good to see you. Doom everywhere my friend. Doom everywhere. What a what a week it's been and we cannot get into our conversation with our esteemed guest shortly without you and I having a quick chat about um a certain Mr. Bankman-Fried. Yes, and we should say, as we're recording this, the events are moving at such an incredible speed. Yeah. And um, we've been trying to write a piece on it for a couple of days, but every day there's new headlines that changes the focus of our piece. But um, yeah. as we're recording this, Sam Bankman-Fried's empire has filed for bankruptcy. And I say empire because I believe there is a 130 listed entities on yes. the uh, on the bankruptcy filing in New York. And, you know, we're, we're laughing, but for a lot of people, this is a very devastating event. And... Um, it's still early days, but the signs are not good. It looks like it is a sort of a worst case scenario of, uh, you have to choose our words carefully in the modern era, but there seems to be an awful lot of missing money and misappropriation potentially of customer funds on a scale that would be even greater than say MF Global. And uh, if that's true, and it, the indications are that there's a lot of money moving around between related parties, in particular um, Alameda, is hedge fund and FTX, the exchange, and um, a lot of that money seems to have gone missing. And so uh, we shall see. It's a fascinating story. You know, as we're doing this, he's still tweeting out threads on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, I, just, you know, we, I, I, I retweeted his thread saying, somebody take away his phone. You know, I mean, what, only on Twitter could you see this play out in real time. And of course, the story is just fascinating with Binance basically creating a run on FTX and doing it on Twitter. And only in 2022 could we be watching this play out in real time. Yeah, I mean, it's been a remarkable couple of days. I mean, really remarkable couple of days. As I've watched the rise of Bankman-Fried, you know, I couldn't help but look at him and listen to him and think to myself, this just doesn't add up. I, I, I couldn't understand why someone could come from nowhere and have that much trust instilled in him by so many people without the kind of background that one would assume he would need to garner that kind of trust. It, I, it just amazed me from day one. And so, you know, when I see this happen, you know, I, I went on the website and I looked at the page that has the Alameda team, you know, and there is <laughs> there is the picture of the CEO, yeah. uh, Caroline, I can't think of a second name, no, Ellison, is it, or Caroline? And, and I had to go and check. I thought the website had been hacked and someone had put a spoof picture up on the website of the CEO you know, intimating that she was just a young girl. And, and, I, and I looked at this and I went and did some digging. And I, I'm, just, I'm just baffled, Doomy, because you and I, and I'm sure many people have seen these excerpts from Sequoia who are, are reacting live time to presentation given by Bankman-Fried. And I'm just bewildered at how easy it seems to have been to talk about a big vision and have everybody just buy into it as if, well, if that's the vision, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it's really amazing, Grant, to watch. And it's a story as old as time, as you know, wherever you have a custodian of funds and you have a mismatch of obligations, you know, the depositors are short-term liabilities and loans are long-term assets or other investments are long-term assets. And then you have liquidity issues when people show up to get their money back. Um, inevitably, you end up with these kinds of runs. And Beyond that, fraud is often associated with these things, but fraud is kind of a late stage activity in many ways. You know, early on, you paper over a few problems, but then uh, in the end, you get sort of more and more desperate as the house of cards starts to fold. Um, I went back and looked at the earliest days of Doomberg, which are very cringeworthy for us to read now. Um, but <laughs> the um, third, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and eleventh pieces that we wrote were about crypto and or Sam Bankman-Fried, who we had really no idea who he was as early as May right. of 2021. And here he is 
at the center of a collapse of a $16 billion empire literally overnight, and uh, perhaps as much as a $10 billion hole of misappropriated funds. That's um, what boggles the mind to me is a billion dollars is a lot of money. You know, like, like how, how do billions of dollars get flung around with no regulatory oversight at all? It's just mind-boggling uh, to me. And yet here we are again and again and again, and, the, and these, these cycles just seem to keep turning. You know, it's really amazing. But this one particularly, you know, this, this, this ability that people have had in the past, I don't know how far back it goes, to spin a yarn about this crazy, incredible future and have people just commit billions to these ideas. And, you know, the name that springs to the top of my mind, obviously, is Elon Musk and all the wild, outrageous promises he's made about robo-taxis and hyperloops and all this, all this stuff that I always just figure it's just me and I'm jaded and cynical and old and I just don't get it. But I, I keep hearing about disruption and exponential age and all this stuff about how the world's going to change. And look, change is a constant, Right. The world is always changing, and yet the world is always experiencing periods like this with bubbles and what have you. It just seems that the rocket fuel to this was zero-cost capital because if you believe in a crazy idea and it costs you nothing to lever up and follow it, well, we've seen the results. We've, we've seen the results in some of these tech names. We've seen what's happened as one by one they've fallen to earth. And I just wonder what the broader implications are now that arguably the biggest name, the biggest player in the crypto space, and I, and I use that as an umbrella rather than any specific term, has had his Icarus moment. What, what do you think happens after this? You know, it's a great question. And, and obviously we're watching Elon struggle with the takeover of Twitter as we speak as well. And who knows how that's going to evolve in the days between uh, you and I recording this and it being published. But um, we're about to find out because unlike, say, the global financial crisis, uh, one positive aspect of crypto that I know both of us share this view, um, one positive aspect of crypto is that there is no uh, lender of last resort. Um, contagion will spread and it'll all get washed out in the end. Um, so we're going to find out in a way uh, what would have happened if the global central banks had not intervened in 2008, 2009, at least if you draw a box around the crypto world. Now, the real question, I think, because I suspect that most of our listeners don't have too much exposure to the crypto space. Some do, I'm sure. But is there any contagion? Is there a bridge of contagion back to the sort of fiat world? Uh, is there a big bank that might be exposed? And there are some rumors to that effect this week, although I won't share them here because rumors are meant to be shared quietly until they're proven. But there is some potential for some contagion and, and some very large hedge funds, as you know, um, bet very big in this space. But the amount of small investors, you know, these Again, we don't know, and so we have to be very careful what we say. But if this turns out to have been sort of a standard Ponzi-type situation, um, the, the real victims, of course, are going to be all of the retail investors who got disproportionate amounts of their life savings sucked into this kind of hype cycle. And what we're seeing now is just very, very messy. You know, there is very little legal precedence for a crypto exchange and bankruptcy. And are the assets of the customers, are, are they just purely unsecured creditors like everybody else? And um, so we shall see. It's a really fascinating time, really dangerous time. And I know we're going to ask Murray about some of this as well, given his sort of views on Bitcoin and, uh, and his activities in that area. Now, I will say, to be very clear, there's a distinction between crypto and Bitcoin. And uh, many of the Bitcoin maximalists uh, are, are actually quite pleased that we're seeing a washout in the crypto space because yeah. they believe that this has sullied the brand of Bitcoin and that the grift and frauds and scams and Ponzi's that have flourished um, during this time of zero interest rate policy need to be washed out and that it's ultimately long-term healthy for Bitcoin. And so it really is just staggering to watch this happen in real time and fascinating to try to make any sense of it. It's hard to conceive of a way where this doesn't bleed into the real world, you know, the world outside the crypto universe. It's just because there's just so much money gone in here. And we know, I mean, and Sequoia is evidence of that, right? We know there are hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone into this. Now, Sequoia have come out and posted a letter on their website talking about how this was a small proportion of their funds, and it might well be. But it just means there are going to be others who perhaps weren't as prudent as Sequoia and used leverage and were were so geared into this thing being the ultimate get-rich-quick scheme and the future and all the other stuff that we've heard it described as. It's very tough for me to think that we're not going to see some, some serious collateral damage. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I struggle to find a pathway to nothing to see here. It was purely a crypto issue and 
there's no contagion. Well, here's the thing that shocked us. You know, we wrote a piece. Again, I almost hesitate to, to say the name and the date because they're just so different than what we write now. But uh, we wrote a piece last July called Sam I Am, where we were pointing out that, look, I mean, the vast majority of what FTX does is illegal in the U.S. They run right. exchanges outside of the country. Now, FTX U.S. is different, and but it was also part of the bankruptcy filing. But um, outside of the U.S., there is a, um, let's call it a far looser, know your customer, anti-money laundering standard. And the activities of Binance, who is being investigated by the U.S., for example, for uh, allegedly laundering something like $8 billion of Iranian funds, the VC firms that were backing all of this activity, it's, it's, they should know better. I mean, it was very clear to us. Like, so just ask yourself a simple question. Why is money laundering a thing? Uh, money laundering is a thing because skirting laws is usually extremely profitable. Um, bribery is profitable. Selling weapons to you know, uh, dictators is profitable. Um, tax evasion is profitable. Uh, but it's only profitable if you could launder that money and get it to back into the, like, the sort of normal approved system. And so there's very good reasons to have pretty strong anti-money laundering and know your customer laws in a proper banking system. And the vast majority of foreign crypto exchanges do very little to know um, know your customer AML. Now, people listening to this will say they're getting better and blah, blah, blah. But by and large, the investors in these types of enterprises knew what the underlying business really was. But they are protected because they're sort of arm's length investors um, in a cap table. Uh, and they could sort of right. write it off as, um, you know, some investments don't work and so on and so on. But in reality, the real enablers here are the providers of the original hard fiat, which is, of course, is an oxymoron to many, uh, many of our listeners, but in the context of crypto is, is a probably a pretty appropriate term. But these, these big firms, like you mentioned, like Sequoia, SoftBank, uh, Dan Loeb um, over at Third Point, they were big, big time backers. And there should be some questions asked. Like if you know the underlying business is illegal in the US, but technically legal in foreign jurisdictions, is that really sort of uh, ESG where the G here is right. at issue. Like what's the governance involved at these venture capital firms who had to know what was going on um, and, and put their money in anyway? Their, their losses are going to be fine because, you know, they're big firms and they have risk tolerance and risk management protocols. But the inducement for the retail crowd to pile in, they're not going to be fine. And, and you know, that's the kind of political damage that can spur significant regulatory oversight. And it's something we're going to see, I think, uh, in response to this. And, you know, there is that little unfortunate data point that uh, SPF was the second largest Biden donor and his parents are very, very large donors uh, on the Democratic left. So we'll see how this all evolves. But there's a, there's a hint of a political scandal uh, embedded in all this as well, which only adds to the ugly factor. Well, and the, the very fact that this is happening and we, 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 you know, we don't know how this plays out, but to watch the announcement by the SEC after this blew up that they were investigating, <laughs> <laughs> they were investigating FTX. The ultimate fire door closing, yeah. It is. It's just, but it's just remarkable to me that the regulators throughout this whole thing. I get that there's a need to try and have a dialogue, and I think everybody appreciates that they're trying to get their hands around this stuff with crypto and not strangle it at birth and make sure that it gets a chance. But surely, number one, before you you figure out how much rope we can give crypto to make sure we don't do anything that kills it, is protecting the public. And this has been an abject failure on the part of the SEC to do anything that's going to cost, as you said, 10, 16, 20 billion dollars straight out the pockets of the people they're supposed to protect. Yeah, you know, there's the mark to market losses, which I always view differently than the cash losses, you know, like right. um, go back to our little Twitter example, you know, 44 billion dollars of cash was wired into that company, you know, changed hands. And that, that's a much bigger deal than, say, Facebook losing $80 billion in market cap because of those market, right, market right, losses right. versus sort of cash-in losses. And so and this is why we're always focused on follow the fiat in the crypto universe, like how much cash is in and where is it? And I think a lot of it's gone. And um, we're going to see now the contagion. There are many, many, many firms that had significant deposits on the FTX exchange and good luck. The Mt. Gox collapse, uh, those people a decade later have still not seen any yeah, recourse. Yeah. And um one fears if the early reports that we're seeing manifest into an accurate reflection of the reality on the ground, this is a, a nuclear bomb of a scandal and really is existential to, I think, the vast majority of crypto. 
Well, we'll see. It will play out. And I dare say you and I will be talking about it again uh, in the not distant future. But before that, why don't we get to our guest? Because we have Murray Stahl joining us from Horizon Kinetics. And Horizon Kinetics is a great firm. They've got some phenomenal guys around there. James DeVolos has been on the podcast. Steve Bregman, I've interviewed in the past. And it's just, it's always an absolute pleasure talking to these guys. And Murray Stoll has been the kind of missing link, the guy we haven't had. So we're delighted to have him join us today. We'll, I dare say, get into the topics of inflation and energy, and I dare say there'll be some crypto in it as well. So what do you say, Dimi? Why don't we? Uh, yes. Why don't we welcome uh, Murray? Let's do it. It's great. Looking forward to it. Hey, Murray. So um, really excited to have this conversation with you. And uh, if if it's okay with you. You know, whenever we have people on, we're always very keen to talk about the things that that they think are important. Otherwise, we end up with a situation where we could be asking the dumbest questions in the world, and you'll be very polite and answer them, and all the time thinking, you know, you guys should really be asking me about X, Y, or Z. So we absolutely want to talk about the things. Yeah. You're. I'm sure you're not going to ask any dumb questions. There are actually very few dumb questions in the world, to be honest with you. There are very few questions that are uh, dumb. They're very rare. Well, well, that is true, but we have a monopoly on them. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. But anyway, I'll answer anything you want. Okay, great. But I'd like to, if we can, start off with the inflationary story, simply because I listened to your uh, recent webinar, and I thought the thing you did at the beginning, just talking about high interest rates in high inflation countries don't necessarily solve the problem, because that's something, particularly in, in the wake of what's happened this week, and we've seen how eagerly the markets have pounced on any kind of moderation. So I figured we could kick off there and then go where the breadcrumbs lead us, if that's okay with you. Okay, that's fine. Well, I'll just make the initial point that, you see, it all stems from classical monetary theory. Classical monetary theory, as we know it, was invented in the early 20th century by Irving Fisher. And everyone knows the idea, you raise interest rates, you're increasing the cost of capital, and you're making it more expensive, and that should slow economic activity. And that may well have been true in the early 20th century, but the world operates differently so today. So first I'll just make, give some examples and I'll explain why the world operates differently. So there are examples of countries that have high interest rates. Argentina is one, interest rate is 60%, inflation something like 100%. Brazil is another, Turkey is another, Lebanon is another, Iran is another, South Africa is another, Venezuela, I think it speaks for itself. There are others. So then the next question is, well, why? Why doesn't monetary theory work the way we learned it in the textbooks? And the, there are a couple of answers to that. The first answer is how the modern economy functions. First thing is, in every nation in the world, the government is the largest part of the economy. That was not true when Irving Fisher wrote the United States. I'll be off for a percent or two, but just for illustrative, illustrative purposes. United States government, by that I mean federal, state, and local, spends about 45% of the GDP. I may, as I said, I may be off for a percent or so, but so the government is not going to stop spending money. You could debate on whether or not they should stop spending money, but it's pointless because they're going to spend the money. And more to the point, Next year, they're going to spend more money than they spend this year. And the following year, they'll spend even more money. So no matter what the interest rate is, and the government obviously borrows a lot of money, the spending is not going to stop. It's going to increase. So high interest rates do not dissuade the government spending money. Inflation is basically what? It's basically if the monetary expenditures are rising faster than the supply of goods and services that are available. That's what causes inflation, basically. So I don't think anybody can argue with that. Now let's continue with the American economy and let's look at some various items that are inflexible regarding interest rates. Let's take healthcare. Now the government, in that spending I noted, there of course is some healthcare spending, Medicare, Medicaid, but not all medical care is covered by the government. Medical care in the United States, the industry is 20% of GDP. I don't know what the non-governmental number is. Let's just say for discussion purposes, it's 10% of GDP. So if people need medical treatment and they have to pay for it and they have the means to pay for it, meaning they're not on Medicaid, they're going to pay for it, no matter what it costs, no matter what the interest rates are. That's at least another 10% of the GDP. Now we're at 55% of GDP. So let's look at the electric utility industry. 
Electric utility is obviously capital intensive, but in the early 20th century, it wasn't regulated the way it's regulated now. There were no guaranteed rates of return. When interest rates went up, Italy stopped constructing plants. Today, the interest expense is a pass-through to the rate payer. No matter what the interest rate is on the utility company debt, the rate structure will be altered by the commissions so that the utilities can repatriate their cost of capital and earn their required rate of return. So I don't know what the number is in terms of utility capital spending as a percent of GDP. I'll just say it's 5%. Maybe it's percent or two less or whatever, but let's just say five. Now we're at 60% of GDP. Education, but I mean college education. Interest rates are higher. It's not going to dissuade anyone from going to college, even at the higher interest rates borrowing. I don't know what the college figures are, but that's another figure. Food and people don't borrow money, generally speaking, to buy food. So you need food. You need you need clothing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You need transportation. Maybe that might decrease a little bit if you add higher unemployment. People aren't going to work, but it's not going to change anything. So I can go on and on like that, but you get the idea. The idea is that higher interest rates are not going to change economic activity sufficiently to alter the inflationary problem. The only way you can affect the inflationary problem is you have to supply the products that are required. So my simplistic way of looking at the, at the planet, if people want more oil or fertilizer or copper or internet service, whatever it is, to prevent inflation, if they had those extra products available, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't bid it up. There wouldn't be inflation. If those products are not going to be available, there is going to be inflation. So that in sum, that's my inflationary argument. Um, but I wasn't too verbose with that, but that's essentially what it is. So, Murray, it's interesting because, you know, when you lay that out, it all makes perfect sense. And yet, the only tools it appears at the, the hands of policymakers is to take the opposite track and try and crush the demand side. You know, that's what they're trying to do at this point. They're going the other way to solve the problem. Rather than trying to increase supply, they are trying to crush demand. So how does that play out, do you think, given the nature of the problem? Well... To begin with, so you see that you can't do it with interest rates, as I just illustrated, but let's just right. make an ancillary point to the points I made before. Let's look at it simplistically. Let's say the entire supply of money in the world were $1,000. So that $1,000, there are people who own the $1,000. There are people who borrow $1,000. Okay, so the people who borrow $1,000 are going to spend more money for interest. People who own the $1,000 are going to get more money. So how are you going to change demand? All you're really doing is you're changing one group's expenses. Your degree to which you reduce one group's expenses, you increase the other group's income. Doesn't doesn't change anything in society. Um, the reason it worked in the early 20th century was the government wasn't a big factor, and we didn't really have a big middle class. So the big the big expenditures were made by a small group of people. And that small group of people, if the capital wasn't readily available at low interest rates, might not undertake those expenditures. You could actually alter the economy. We don't live in that economy anymore. So ways, ways it play, the way it plays out is very simplistically, the central banks, note the plural, the central banks of the world, they will discover it's not working the way classical monetary theory says it's supposed to work. And you can see it today. It's not working. And um, you're going to have to alter their policy. You're going to have to use some other mechanism. This is not the mechanism to accomplish what they want. So, Maria, it's a fascinating concept. And as I was listening to your sort of opening answer, I, uh, two thoughts came to mind. First, of course, the level of programmed increases in entitlement spending. Uh, you know, for example, the Social Security for 2023, I think, is going up 8.7%, which is, of course, just based on inflation as measured by the CPI. And so... Um, pretty obvious once you hear you say it, that as government becomes a bigger part of the expenditures, programmed increases are going to just dwarf any effects uh, potentially. But my real question is, as I hear you um, list off the countries where interest rates are very high, but inflation is also stampeding along, um, none of those countries happen to be in possession of the world's reserve currency. How does the fact that the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency enter into your model and how you think about the U.S. in isolation as opposed to you know a country who just runs the standard model because given the level of uh, excess spending and printing in the U.S., we have not seen until very recently excessive structural inflation like we're seeing today. But I wonder 
you know, are we rubbing up against the benefits of the reserve currency? And then once that plug is pulled, look out below? Well, I would put it this way. So instead of saying what's going to happen to the world's reserve currency, I said, why is it the world's reserve currency? Because for the larger part of the last hundred years, United States America did not do what many other nations did. So if you compare it, let's say, even post-World War II, United States budget deficit, or let's say to France. United States is hard to believe, but from 1946 to 1960, if you look up the figures, you'll see the United States ran more or less a, um, a balanced budget. They make a religion out of it, so there you'll find years where there are small deficits. You'll find years there are small increases, and by and large, they ran a balanced budget. The European nations couldn't do that because they had to recover from the Second World War. And the emerging nations, those emerging from colonialism, by and large, they couldn't do it because they had to develop a nation. The United States was in a very privileged position in that war was not fought on American territory. We didn't have the degree of social unrest that you had in other nations. We had certain luxuries. Now, the United States is, I guess it's fair to say, the world's leading superpower, maybe even arguably the world's only superpower. And with that comes some global commitments. We'd argue people debate all the time how large they should be. But it costs a lot of money to do that. And um, the United States, you could say, is in the position that um, actually filling the position that Great Britain filled, uh, tried to fill um, post-World War One incredibly expensive, and if it dwarfs the tax base of the nation, then we won't be the world's reserve currency either. And that's what's going to happen. That's how it plays out, ultimately. It's a privilege. It's not a right. You have to be very judicious in how you you make use of that privilege. So that's the way I would probably answer it. Given that as, as background, the course of action that the Federal Reserve has embarked upon, which has been to primarily, it seems, convince people that they are serious about taming inflation. And the interest rate rises, which in fairness are pretty much the only tool they have at their disposal, have been perhaps necessarily and flagrantly aggressive in order to change people's perception that they're serious about this. But if given everything you've said up until this point, you know, that suggests that they can't solve the problem with the tool at their disposal. And that leads me to believe that really this all is all, as many people suspect, about optics. And what they're hoping to do is change the mindset around inflation, convince people that it's under control, so they can then either pause or, I'd imagine, begin to lower rates again. So is this all just pure theatre? Does this thing have to play out one way or another and what the Fed's doing is theatre, or can they actually have an effect on the outcome? Well, I don't think personally it'll work. By the way, I'm actually very, they're in a predicament. I'm very sympathetic to their predicament. I don't think I personally, if I were on the Federal Reserve, I would do a better job. It has the tools that it has at its disposal, and those are not tools that are going to be effective in doing a job. So what's happened right now? What's happened right now is it didn't work the way it was supposed to work for another reason, because the yield curve, if you look at the yield curve right this moment, the yield curve is inverted. What does that do? That makes it's not very sensible to lend out money. How would you lend out money when the cost of money is higher? You're, mostly, you're basically borrowing short and lending long. That's the whole banking model. That's not the outcome that's wanted. Work that way and they have, don't have any ways that are good changing the slope of the yield curve. So it's, a real, it's a real problem. You start with the, what the International Monetary Fund does to countries usually when they have this kind of predicament of overspending, um, they demand that the government dramatically cut spending and they want more money, they want a loan. And frequently governments have to agree to that. That's called austerity and it's incredibly painful. It, um, that's more, that's more, has a history of more success aiming inflation, but the side effects so onerous that I don't think very many people would like to try that um, politically destabilizing. I don't see it being tried here. I'm sympathetic to them, but it is what it is. So, Murray, um, you alluded to the fact that the real solution to inflation is making more stuff because it is, of course, a ratio, right? The amount of fiat chasing the amount of things um, that we make and the sort of master resource embedded in 
all of our manufacturing, of course, is primary energy. And I know this is a topic that you guys have written a lot about, and I have enjoyed all of your commentary on the subject. Wondering if the sort of potential collapse of the U.S. as a reserve currency uh, in the midst of an energy crisis surprises you? Uh, what are your thoughts, and how do you think the role of energy um, going forward is going to be as things uh, proceed here? Well, we're nearing 8 billion people on the planet. The 1% growth rate, that was the population growth rate, it's actually not far from that. 80 million new human beings every year. So let's ignore people who are coming into the middle class and are going to use more energy. 80 million people, that's, the United, that's a little bit less than a quarter of the American population. Let's say it was just the United States of America. 80 million new human beings showed up in the United States of America, and even if they weren't living at the middle class standard, how much energy would they be using even if they're not living to the American standard? The answer is tremendous amount of energy. The world, needs energy. The world is going to need those resources. It can't be done by wind. It can't be done by solar. And the reason it can't be done is because they're intermittent. And secondly, anywhere you put them, people object to them being there. Thirdly, there's the issue of um, mills, sulfur hexafluoride, which sulfur hexafluoride is the most potent greenhouse gas or not. Sulfur hexafluoride gas is used to insulate the cables inside the windmill. Sulfur hexafluoride, I think the number is something like 2,300 times, or maybe it's more potent as greenhouse gas than CO2. And if the windmill catches on fire, and sulfur hexafluoride, once it's burned or carbonized, it becomes phosgene gas, which you or downwind of it and you inhale it, um, is your life in about 30 seconds. So it's not a good solution. In certain applications, perhaps, but now replacing conventional energy with the at least the available alternatives. The only solution is we're going to have to create more natural gas. We're going to have to create more oil. We're going to have to maybe even mine more coal. Inevitable. Now, maybe it isn't a desirable solution. I uh, totally appreciate that. People have to have the energy. So what are we supposed to do? Anyway, that's my position on it. We bring this round to energy, which is another topic that Doomberg and I talk about an awful lot in these conversations. Particularly, Doomberg has written some phenomenal pieces about this. So let's pivot this to energy. I, I want to come back. There's a couple of aspects of inflation that I want to come back to a little later on. But while you bring up the subject of energy, let's talk about that. Because when you lay out an analysis like yours, which is just grounded in reality. We don't need to get too into the weeds. There are some very big picture realities that the world is facing here that need to be resolved. And yet most of the focus in recent months and recent years has been around preferences. You know, my friend Marco Papich likes to see the world through the lens of constraints and preferences. And we all understand what the preferences are. We'd all like a greener future. We'd all like less carbon emissions. We'd all like all the things that the environmental lobby mandate are necessary. But as you just pointed out, there are constraints. And those constraints suggest that the path that is being forced upon the world is being forced upon it on a timetable which is unworkable. When you look at that side of the equation, you look at the steps being made uh, to try and achieve, quote unquote, a green future, surely it seems that that is only going to feed into this inflationary bubble and, and make it even worse. Well, they have an expression where I come from, um, which is um, you don't throw out dirty water until you have clean water. Same thing with energy. It's possible to reduce demand for electricity. So, for example, you could put CFL light bulbs in everyone's apartment. They kind of look like the incandescent bulbs. They're not exactly the same thing, but they got them pretty good. You can use them, and they actually use... I think the number is 12%. And the same number of lumens or close to the same number use about 12% of the power of the incandescent bulb for the same wattage. You could do that. It's possible. The trouble is, if you do that, you're now disrupting the world light bulb industry. Oh, there are some people who know it's totally different making a CFL bulb as opposed to making an incandescent bulb. You want to do that are you willing, the price you're going to have to pay is there are going to be some companies that um, can be non-viable. 
won't be experts in CFL technology. So it's better industrial policy. It's regulators to determine, are you willing to do that? Now, that's not going to solve the energy problem. Step in the right direction. So, for example, let's take the internet. The, the net neutrality model, we all pay the same thing for internet services. It's sort of like an all-you-can-eat restaurant. And the cloud data storage, it's just an electromagnet. That's all it is. So every one of these big disk drives, just electromagnet. Well, do you want to reduce the amount of energy, electricity being used? Well, one way to do it is move away from the net neutrality model is you're going to have to pay money for data access. So, so therefore, A and B may not pay the same for internet service. A might use the internet sparingly. B might be binge watching on Netflix. That's what you want to do. You're going to have to pay for it because that movie coming off a server being transmitted on a fiber optic cable, it's actually using a lot of bandwidth and it's actually using a lot of electric power. So are we willing to do that? Because that's going to, if we did that to society, we might go a long way towards solving the energy problem in the sense that we're using less energy. But to do that, that's going to disrupt many, many people's business model. Business model in that, you know how much business in that is based on there are no data charges. You can use as much as that's not the way the internet started, but it came recognized that if you wanted to grow, it's going to have to be net neutrality. So are we willing to do that as a society? Um, the answer apparently, now this is, this is a societal question. It's not up to me. Apparently, globally, the answer is no. We don't want to do that. Same thing, but let's say 5G. 5G, these antennas, they're only 200 feet apart. Not like the big cell towers that we're used to. They're going to be much faster and use much more data in relation to my earlier point, and therefore are going to use much, much more electric power. Now you'll get better, faster, or um, data rich. It'll be the the images will be sharper, will be clearer. You download a lot of data really rapidly if you're working mobile in the mobile sense. Probably very good for you, but you can use a lot of electric power. So we are, this is when I say you, I mean the societal you, the plural you. Is society willing to suspend 5G with a view to reducing electric power consumption? I don't know the answer to it. I just suspect the answer is no. So if they say you can't have your cake and eat it, so if you want all those things, then you're going to have to provide the fossil fuels to make all those things happen. Let's put it this way. Since we're all collectively, to a greater or lesser extent, consumers are all those things, let me just put it simplistically, all those things viewed collectively, online movies and data and the cloud and so on and so forth, that is not a low-carbon lifestyle footprint. That is a high-carbon lifestyle footprint. So that's what you want. That's what society wants. Again, the plural you. That's what it's going to be. I don't think society is ready to make the sacrifice that's needed. So, Murray, um, if I could generalize your answer to that specific question, it sounds like it's something that we believe as well, that you're basically describing a broken market mechanism for the consumption of energy. And for evidence, we can look to Europe, where at the very first signs of distress, they bailed out all the consumers, which effectively makes energy cheaper for them uh, and limits the ability to destroy demand. Because as you say, destroying demand is unpopular. And so, you know, this is the uh, week of COP27, and we're talking, you know, as the world gathers in Egypt to talk about climate change, our view is that the world is just going to roll the dice and consume more energy, fossil fuels, natural gas, oil, and coal, and um, just deal with the consequences of climate change as they arise. Um, do you have a, a similar view? And, and what are your thoughts around the industries that would benefit from that scenario uh, outside of just primary energy producers? Well, I don't have this. I have a different view. So my view is... There's a hierarchy of needs. Hierarchy of needs, heating your home, <clears throat> that's important. And that should take precedence. Watching a movie on Netflix at 3 a.m., it's not really that important. So the pricing is the answer, but you have to distinguish between uses. So it might well be, we have the computer power to be able to make these distinctions. If you're using electricity or diesel or whatever it is, eat your home. Well, that's important and won't charge a lot. You, 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 if you're going to use electric power, which we're using burning natural gas or coal, if you use electric power to watch a movie on Netflix, well, maybe it's not that important. 
You don't need to be emailing. You don't need to be on Facebook. You, I mean, you could if you want to. No one's going to stop you. But it's, that's using a tremendous amount of electric power, and you could live very nicely without that. So we just have to have we have to price things based on a hierarchy of needs. And we don't. We've never developed in the cap in the in the capitalist system way of doing that. That's what I believe is going to be needed. Uh, you have to make some subject, subjective judgments. Um, if you make those subjective judgments, then a lot of businesses are going to be disrupted. So what I just said, Twitter would be disrupted. Facebook would be disrupted. The Microsoft cloud, the Google cloud, Google itself, Netflix, Hulu, um, and so on and so forth. So look at all those companies and what percentage of the S&P 500 would it really represent? So start with Apple, that's about 6.5% of the S&P. You know, if you want to use Amazon, by all means, go ahead and use Amazon. But if you just want to shop online and surf it for three or four hours, using a lot of power, it shouldn't be free. You should have to pay something for that. If you paid something for that, you would, we would, as a society, we would use less of it, and you'd be able to reduce demand. You're not going to destroy demand. You're going to reduce it to a level that might be tolerable for society. That's the, anyway, that's the way ultimately it could be handled. But it will be handled like that, that's an open question. So it almost sounds like you know, this movement towards uh, measuring everybody's carbon footprint of their activities and then imposing a budget upon them, like some of the sort of WF, World Economic Forum conspiracy stuff that you might find on Twitter. It sounds like, in a sense, that is a plausible outcome in your view. Like, uh, you, uh, sorry, well, uh, Murray, Murray, but you've driven 100 miles today and, and we're going to go ahead and turn off your car remotely. I don't think you need to do any of that stuff. I, it's very easy. So basically, it's that you're, all you're doing is you're getting rid of net neutrality, for starters. You're saying you're gonna, everybody's going to pay a data usage fee. So the bigger data users are going to pay more. So what we're doing is we're saying, listen, this menu in this restaurant, it's not all you can eat anymore. You can order whatever you like. We're not rationing you. You can order whatever you like, but you're going to pay for it. That's all. We're just, all we're doing is, as a society, we're getting rid of the all-you-can-eat menu. The year 1999, no one talked about this because we didn't really, we had the internet, but we didn't have it to the degree we have it. It wasn't so inter, interwoven in our lives. Okay, we have it. The internet, which look how many businesses are founded on the internet, it's essentially the all-you-can-eat model. So unless you're going to address that, you don't, have, you're, you don't have a chance of lowering the demand for energy. It's the most intensive use of energy. But it's got, it's okay. You have to move away from all you can model. You don't have to be Orwellian and monitor everybody's electric usage and say you've got over your allowed budget. We don't have to be anything like that. Just need to have a sensible, it's, it's a change of one regulation. And the regulation really stems from, in the United States anyway, Federal Communications Commission. It's going to impose a price mechanism on data and see where it takes us. Now think about all the companies whose employees work with data. They're online the entire day. Can you imagine if they had to pay for their data, what the bills would be like? What really happened is when you went to net neutrality, they got a subsidy. Now if, we, if, if, if it involved steel, if we had to pay as much for steel as let's say a big construction company, we would say that's outrageous. Why are we all paying the same for internet usage when we're all using different amount of internet? It's nothing Orwellian about it. Just the price mechanism that we know. We wouldn't do it with food. And if we did do it with food, we'd know it'd be wasteful. Let's say they had a, they had a program in the average supermarket, $50, all the food you want to walk out with. You walk in, pay fifty dollars, and you can walk out with shopping baskets of food. <laughs> it would be incredibly wasteful. Not everybody might take out tremendous amounts of food. Some people might uh, be sensible bad, but it'd be very wasteful. That's what that's what's happening in energy globally. So there's a problem. That's the nature of the problem, essentially, as I see it. So one regulation, nothing Orwellian, nothing you know that would uh, infringe on anyone's personal liberty. Just a rational price mechanism. That's it. We're not going to track anybody. We're not going to monitor anybody. They'll still have all. They'll still have their complete privacy, and they have the liberty of action. They can use as much power as they want. Pay for it. That's it. So, Mario, let me ask you. 
and I hate to make this pivot too early, but uh, I can't help it given what we've just talked about. What does that kind of world do to cryptocurrencies? A pretty good thing for cryptocurrency. See, a lot of people, they are under the impression that cryptocurrency uses some egregious amount of power. So I'll just, I can go on for hours in this subject. I'll just state two facts that no one will believe me, but I've written papers on it and I can document all this. Number one fact, the electric power usage or terahash in the case of Bitcoin, if you like, last six years down by approximately 93%. 93%. No one will believe that, but it's true. Now, next fact, why is it true? So I'm quoting some, I'm, 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 well, I'm telling you something I know to be true if you look at the specifications for an XS6 miner and see how many watts it draws for the terahash that it had relative to an S19 XP, how many watts that draws for 140 terahash, you'll see. If, I was, if I'm wrong, I erred in the side of caution. Anyway, the Bitcoin protocol is struck with something called a halving. What does that mean? That means that every four years, your block reward, your reward, the amount of Bitcoin you get for validating a transaction is cut in half. We're approximately right now, 538 days away from the next halving. So you know when it's coming, you know what it's gonna do. So the price of Bitcoin doesn't go up, your revenue just got cut in half because you didn't have as many Bitcoin. The only, you can't control the price of Bitcoin. You know the halving date, but you can't control that either. So all you can do is lower your electricity consumption. That's what's been happening since Bitcoin was invented. So the thing about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is it stems from the, an, an idea, didn't refer to Bitcoin. In 1977, the economist, um, political theorist, um, Friedrich von Hayek wrote a book called Denationalization of Money. It was published in 77, the inflationary era, of course, and he made a point. The point he made was you will never as a society be able to deal with the inflationary problem as long as the central banks have the power to create money. You have to take it away from them. So he proposed you should have a private central bank. It's not really such an outlandish idea, although it sounds outlandish today, because the Bank of England, the first central bank ever created, created at the end of the 17th century, that was a privately owned bank until 1948. It's not outlandish in light of history, but the trouble was the idea is that we be a private bank, they would have a fixed amount of currency, and they wouldn't issue anymore. And the problem is it'll never gonna work. And the reason it's never gonna work is because how can you trust the central bankers? They say there's gonna be X millions of units of the currency, whatever currency happens to be. What if they don't keep their word? How do you validate that? Nobody had an answer for that question. They call that the authentication problem. Just because they say there's X millions of units of currency, how do you know there really are? Nobody could solve that problem until the evolution of the blockchain. You have a distributed ledger and all these different people are able to validate how many coins should be there at any moment in time. So it does two really important things. One is it controls the money supply creation so you won't have an inflationary problem. You now have a currency that's essentially fixed, big deal. Secondly, unlike a normal bank, because there are so many validators, it's unhackable. I mean, theoretically it's hackable, but in practice it's unhackable. The reason it's unhackable because there are literally millions of servers that are checking the blockchain literally every minute of the day. It was decentralized. So the decentralization of it, plus the fixed money supply aspect of it, you solve the inflation problem and you solve the security or cybersecurity or hacking problem, if you like. That's what makes it so powerful. So if it goes to its logical conclusion, which I believe ultimately will, you could probably displace the whole banking system. The whole, um, the modern banking system, which is the fractional reserve banking system, that financial institutions are leveraged. And that causes a lot of financial instability. You don't need that. You don't need a financial system that has fractional reserve banking. That's another good thing about cryptocurrency. So cryptocurrency is coming. People might not like it, and I could see why it would be disruptive for certain businesses, but I believe it's coming, and it's coming very, very rapidly. And I don't think it's using a lot of energy. Murray, um, in our latest piece, we actually wrote about the fate of a 
Bitcoin miner in the state of New York, which recently lost its Title V permit. And uh, the environmentalists went after them when they found out that they were burning natural gas to mine for Bitcoin. And um, as we point out in the article, you know, that power plant actually serves a pretty important use for the grid at large in the sense that it could be a, a peaker power plant that can quickly shuttle between feeding electricity into the grid and, and using electricity to, to mine for Bitcoin. And this gave them a financial incentive to run 24-7 as opposed to peaker plants, which are uneconomic because they can only run for as many hours in the month that the, the grid might need them to meet uh, peak demand. And yet, despite all of their best efforts, you know, they are basically victims of the environmental movement and Elizabeth Warren got involved. And effectively, from our view, it looks like the company is potentially even facing a bankruptcy filing. Back to this whole political constraints, you know, um, what we should do, what we could do, what we will eventually do, there's sort of a path function embedded in all of those assumptions. I'm wondering if you're familiar with that situation and what your thoughts are around the uh, opposition to Bitcoin mining from the left, the environmental left in particular. Well, I mean, you stated their case pretty well, so I don't need to repeat it. So basically, I'll tell you what I do, because I mine Bitcoin. I only buy, well, I don't want to say only, I generally speaking, try to buy off-peak power. So I'm buying power from what's called the spinning reserve. Let me explain what the spinning reserve is and how it works. So basically, if you want to buy power throughout the day, have it available, and you want to run your, your mining equipment 24-7, you're going to pay a lot of money for power. And if you buy... The spinning reserve with off-peak power is basically from roughly 6 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon. Monday to Friday, you're turning your machines off. You're running them the rest of the time. So why is that, why is that cheaper? That's like 3.5 cents a kilowatt. Why do they do that? Because a lot of people don't understand what the spinning reserve is. So you know that if you turn the light off in your house, your electric bill is going to be lower. But just because your electric bill is lower doesn't mean that the utility is now generating less electric power because you turned the light off. Utility is generating enough power in what's called a spinning reserve, I'll decide what that is in a second, to basically make sure that no matter how high the demand peaks, there'll always be enough power for everybody. The spinning reserve are plants that are on, they're generating power, but nobody's using it. They rarely use it. So why do they keep it on? Well, uh, there are points in a day where for 20 minutes, Demand spikes. People are just coming home and turning all the lights on their house, or they're getting to work in the morning, and all of a sudden, all the computers go on, everything else goes on. There are these peaks. So you just have to have power available. So the spinning reserve might only be running for an hour or two, buying, selling power, making money. The rest of the time, it's generating power, but not selling any power. So the difference between generating power and not selling any power. So if I basically buy that power, on at one o'clock in the morning, it's going to be on anyway. If I didn't have any mining, they're going to they're going to burn the gas and have the power on anyway. So by me buying it, the power is going to be generated no matter what happens. If I didn't even exist, so I'm paying for that power that otherwise will be unsold. And I'm now because I'm subsidizing the spinning reserve, I'm lowering the consumer rate because the utility is getting some of its allowed rate of return or required rate of return from me. Eliminate me, you need the same amount of power and everybody's electric bill is gonna go up. So that's my response to those folks. I think with all due respect to them, and I think what they're doing is actually fairly noble. You gotta learn how a power plant works. It doesn't work the way intuitively you think it works. It couldn't work the way people intuitively think it works. You think it sort of works the way your electric bill works doesn't work that way, it's never worked that way, never will work that way, and can never work that way. Murray, isn't that part of the wider problem with all of this stuff? Because let's take it away from being so specific around Bitcoin, but let's talk about nuclear energy. You know, the problem here is the people making all the noise about nuclear energy, and we've had conversations, Doomberg and I, on this podcast about this with people that, that understand this, they're all making a lot of noise about things that they really don't understand. There's an awful lot of emotionality around energy in particular. Throw in nuclear, throw in Bitcoin, and it amps up that emotion significantly. But we have this fundamental problem where people are complaining about things and demanding the end of things and the institution of other things about which they really have no real in-depth understanding. How do we get around that as a problem? Because it just clouds the, 
discussion and makes, in many cases, the right outcome impossible to achieve? Well, you see, more a sociological question, and it's an educational question. I would say the positions are so strident on the various sides that we we're just talking about what we don't agree on. So rather than have that, we've had those debates. I would recommend to people, let's try to find something we can agree on. So let's try to figure out how a power plant actually works. Let's agree on that. And then if we can, uh, that's less controversial. If we can agree on how our power plant works, because we're getting it, we're all getting an education. And we'll, even though we might not bridge a gap between one another, we'll at least get a little closer. The best thing to do when having these conversations is, look, I, I'm not against solar panels. I'm not against anything, actually. So I, I want to answer your question. Let's just get together. Let's have a conversation about how these things really work. There's a place in China called Baotu. That's where a lot of the rare earth is mined. You're probably not going to go there. But if you went on the internet and looked at a picture of it, it actually looks pretty close. Dante's image of what hell is. Literally what it looks like. Not environmentally friendly activity. These are incredibly toxic materials. So if people just saw what they're doing, we'd have a lot more intelligent conversations. So we basically should forego the debate, just have a discussion. So if I had a number of ways you can create energy with modern technology, let's learn about them without forming opinions. Then we can have an intelligent conversation. Well, Murray, I said we'd get back to inflation. I don't want to come back to inflation because I'm curious to understand your thoughts on markets now. So let's talk about the reaction. We've seen a huge rally this week in response to a 7.7% CPI print, which um, was enough to rally the Dow 1,000 points and the S&P 5% and the NASDAQ 7%. Give us your thoughts on on where risk assets are, particularly bonds and equities, uh, at the current juncture in this kind of battle between rate increases, moderating inflation, and the, the pivot, which everybody's obviously hoping for? Well, they might actually get the pivot. If they get the pivot, then we might end up having lower rates. It may be that this policy won't work, and therefore it's unsustainable. And they may get the pivot. It's possible. I don't know that, but I suspect that a lot of them might be right. It's not my personal theory, but it might be right. But rates are only one problem with the It's only one problem with stocks. The bigger problem with stocks is not the valuation problem. The bigger problem with stocks is just look at the S&P 500 and just look at the names. I only mention the S&P 500 because most of the names there, most people know what those companies do, even if that's conversant with the business dynamics of the companies. So take any company. I'm going to use McDonald's. I don't want to pick on McDonald's. Just to use it as an example. So it's in the S&P 500. And some people don't eat McDonald's. Some people do eat McDonald's. If you eat McDonald's, you're going to eat 10% more McDonald's than you ate the year before. Probably not. Whoever wants McDonald's globally, they have McDonald's. So it's a business, the demand for which is saturated. I could have said the same about Kraft Heinz. Some people like ketchup. Some people don't like ketchup. Some people like deleted cheese. Some people don't like it. You want it, it's there for you. But you're not going to find great masses of people who have not been exposed to it. And so on and so forth, right down the list. Yeah, because who said Apple? How many people don't yet have their smartphone? Some necessarily have to buy an Apple smartphone, but how many people do not have one yet? It's very few. So it's not going to be easy for that business to grow. doesn't mean it's a bad business. doesn't mean the management's doing anything wrong. It's just that the S&P is replete with demand-saturated businesses. That's the problem with the bulk of the equities that the bulk of them are demand-saturated businesses. So it's going to require some degree of active management research to extract those companies that have the more favorable investment characteristics. That's why I'm a believer in active management. See what happens. That's my position on the equities. And bonds, you can debate about the inflation rate. You can debate about how high it is. You can debate about the forecast. Is it being calculated the right way? But if you're an individual you pay taxes, even you buy a treasury in round numbers, 4%. After taxes, it's two plus percent. So whatever the inflation rate is, you're below that. Not a good value. So for an institution, I'm not even sure it makes sense for them. We're not even 
at a positive real rate of return in bonds. Or for that to be intriguing as an asset class, you have to have a positive real rate of return. We're clearly not there. And it's got to be for individuals, a positive real rate of return after taxes. And no question it's not there. That's the lemma with traditional bonds. And that's now you've heard the lemma of traditional stocks. So that's not going to change if, the, if and when the Fed pivots. So, Murray, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you for your opinion. I have a pretty strong idea of what you're going to think about it, about the blow up in the crypto community this week, which of course is different than Bitcoin. And many people who are proponents of Bitcoin's technology would argue that a washout in the crypto space is a positive thing for Bitcoin long term. But it has really been a historic week. I'm sure you're watching the developments um, as we're recording. FTX filed for uh, bankruptcy. All 130 entities associated with FTX has filed for bankruptcy in Delaware. I'm curious to get your views as a Bitcoin miner and as a proponent of Bitcoin what you think of the crypto washout and the sort of apparent levels of fraud and deceit that are being uncovered as we speak? Well, listen, I haven't uncovered any in Bitcoin. I can understand that people would get very excited. They probably haven't even covered everything that went wrong in FTX. We're probably going to do an investigation. We'll probably learn other things. What we know right now is pretty gruesome in and of itself. But see, the problem was that you have a, a, something functioning as an exchange not an exchange. In SEC parlance, an exchange has a certain definition. It's a self-regulated organization licensed by the SEC, regulated and responsible, doing certain things required by law. And there, there's oversight both inside the company compliance and by the regulators. So this thing doesn't happen with well, the regulated exchanges in the United States, the Intercontinental Exchange, the CBOE, uh, so on and so forth. This doesn't happen in the United States of America. We have clearing houses. We hold money for our customer deposits. I don't believe a regulated clearinghouse in the United States has ever had a default, ever. So the exchanges should have been regulated. They weren't. So they're not. This is an example of the sort of things that can happen. It doesn't in any way invalidate Bitcoin. Bitcoin is completely decentralized. Bitcoin has a lot of redundancy to it. None of this stuff has ever happened to Bitcoin. It's completely transparent. So it's not likely to ever happen to Bitcoin. So I know people might question that in light of the FTX development because they can't distinguish what is the difference between FTX and Bitcoin. But it's apples and oranges, really. I'm still very enthusiastic about Bitcoin and um, I'm mining and I'm accumulating Bitcoin and I'm not selling my Bitcoin and I'm pretty happy with it. Fantastic. Well, Murray, it's been a fascinating hour. It's flown by. So our thanks from both of us to you for, for giving up this time in your day. You've left us with an awful lot to think about. Just before we close, how do people follow you a little bit more, whether through Horizon Kinetics or in your own personal um, auspices? Oh, well, um, there is the Horizon Kinetics website and some of my stuff is there. If you, There's a telephone number you can call. I've written over the years, all sorts of essays, and I have a book, and if you want to get a lot of paper for free, just call up and we'll send you one. Follow what we're doing. The current stuff is usually on the website, um, historical stuff. Hopefully, it, it carries its value all the time. So some people find it interesting to read that. We're happy to send it out, and that's what I would recommend. And I also do conference calls um, periodically. There's the FRMO conference call. Uh, log into FRMO as a publicly traded company. And um, I do plenty of presentations. So you'll, if you want to hear the sound of my voice, you won't have a problem hearing it. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. All right, Murray, listen again. Thanks so much for taking the time. And I wish you a, a, a fantastic weekend. Okay, you too. Thanks so much. I enjoyed okay, it. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, Jimmy, uh, that was, again, another fascinating conversation. I mean, it's um, uh, the energy world is just a, a bottomless pit of interest. And, you know, I, I, it's so fascinating to dig into it. I'm, I'm glad always to, to be able to hold your wing as we do that because you understand this space <laughs> an awful lot better than me from an elemental perspective. But also, you know, Murray's thoughts on inflation, I, I found very thought-provoking. Yes, and also his commentary about um, Bitcoin mining in general and, and the piece that we had just written about as well, about you know, potentially stabilizing the grid and then, Interesting to hear how into Bitcoin mining he is, you know, and, and uh, you know, he's a very smart guy and, and runs a very successful business and um, is voting with his uh, electrons, as one might say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, you know, the topic du jour of this collapse of, of FTX. And so, yeah, it was a really great discussion. And, um, you know, Grant, we should do this again more often, you know, as, as much as you travel. I, I got to find my way to your calendars uh, much more often here. 
No, don't you worry. I, I, my microphone goes with me everywhere I go. I, 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 every time it goes through a, a security screen at the airport, I have to get my bag out and I look at it because I, I don't know what it looks like, but it looks like something that I shouldn't have in my bag, so I have to do it every time. I should start carrying it through the scanner with me. Anyway, my friend, um, it's always a pleasure. For those of you listening, uh, Murray mentioned it there, but the best place to find out more about him, about Horizon, and uh, get copies of all the stuff he's written and published in the past is at horizonkinetics.com. There's a world of stuff on there and some great stuff, not only by Murray, but again, by Steve and by James. And our thanks to Murray for taking the time to join us. You can follow us on Twitter if you're not doing so already. You'll find me at TTMYGH. Yes, and we're at, at Doomberg T, and you can also read our stuff, of course, at uh, doomberg.substack.com. And uh, yeah. like I said, Grant, always, always a pleasure to hop on with you. And if you're not reading any of Doomberg stuff yet, what the hell are you thinking? Get on there right away. Doomy, great to talk to you, my friend. Let's do it again soon. You bet. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.